This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Florence Mapman, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. It's been about a month and a half since we had our trauma cast on the at This Is Our Lane. And I wanted to reach out to some of the leaders in this field while we're here at the East meeting on uh, an update, really, on firearm injury prevention. Uh, as we stated in the previous trauma cast, the opinions that are expressed are those of myself and the people that I'm interviewing. They are not the opinions of East. We'll try to take a balanced approach. I understand some of you prefer the trauma cast to just be clinical. And uh, if you are purely clinical, a trauma cast purist, this is the one you'll skip. However, I thought it was a, an important topic to revisit since um, firearm injury is just something that each one of us deals with uh, on a daily basis at work. Um, and, it, and it really is a, a disease state that needs to be addressed uh, more fully. So that's what we're going to try to do an update on and uh, kind of see where we've been in the past couple of months since the at this is our lane. Uh, uh, kind of uh, tagline has uh, launched. I'm sitting with Joe Saccharin. Joe, if you want to introduce yourself and uh, tell us how you got involved with the At This Is Our Lane campaign. Yeah, so thanks so much for uh, having me. Uh, my name is Joe Saccharin, and I'm a, a trauma critical care surgeon uh, from Baltimore, Maryland, uh, currently working at Johns Hopkins Hospital. And uh, I uh, head up the emergency general surgery uh, aspect of our division uh, at Hopkins and uh, function as uh, one of the trauma cr critical care surgeons there. Thank you. And it goes without saying, you can't think about at this is our lane without also associating you with it. Take us back to December. How did this whole thing even start? Yeah, so on November 7th, uh, when uh, the communication came out from uh, the NRA, I think a lot of us in the medical community were very surprised um, because in my recollection uh, it's not uh, very often that uh, the gun lobby comes uh, out against uh, healthcare professionals or the medical community. Uh, and a lot of us uh, I think were really incensed, I mean, uh, for an organization to uh, suggest that uh, those of us that are on the front line. Uh, taking care of uh, these patients day in and day out, uh, have no business in being part of the solution to, you know, reduce farm injury and death in this country uh, is really just unacceptable. And I think it uh, demonstrated a clear demonstration of how uh, they're really not serious about wanting to uh, develop solutions to make communities safer across America. And you created the at this is our lane Twitter handle, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, after uh, we had responded back to the communication over social media, uh, decided that um, this was an opportunity to leverage, um, you know, some of the uh, uh, commentary and uh, uh, some of the conversation that was happening in a way that unites healthcare professionals. And uh, that was one thing that uh, I thought, you know, 
was really needed. I mean, after Parkland, I uh, started Docs Demand Action, which gained a little bit of traction, but um, the uh, traction that This Is Our Lane gained was uh, something that really uh, was unprecedented. Uh, and it really, uh, in my mind, again, is a platform that unites uh, all healthcare professionals that are, uh, you know, uh, concerned about the public health crisis that we're facing and that want to engage in providing data-driven solutions to uh, uh, reduce fire, injury, and death. So that's six weeks ago, and, and I was part of it. I got involved in the Twitter explosion and, and found it very exciting. But, I mean, has that just faded? I mean, this stuff kind of comes and goes. It's like there's cycles of news stories, hot buttons, hot topics. We're two months out. Holidays have happened. We're all back to the work and back to the grind. Is, is this going to kind of fade down again, or do you think it has some legitimate lasting uh, potential and energy? So, you know, I think that's a good, it's a good question. It's something that a lot of us that are, you know, involved in kind of the movement – um, have been discussing. I think it hasn't faded um, for a variety of reasons. I think what we've seen come out of this movement are a number of different uh, things. You know, the first is you can see uh, what's happening in February next month with the American College of Surgeons where uh, there's a medical summit that's being organized, bringing together, you know, over 40 organizations that, um, you know, kind of function in the space to try to, you know, build consensus and engage uh, those of us in healthcare. So part of that was spearheaded by, uh, I think, the movement. Uh, and, you know, we've talked, there's a, there's a few people, uh, Dr. Bilal Joseph, uh, Dr. Rachel Calcutt, Dr. Jamie Coleman, that, you know, early on we've been really, um, you know, involved in some of the strategy and ideas of how to kind of move this uh, forward. And they've been great, you know, advisors and people that, you know, um, I've been using to uh, help uh, develop the next steps uh, with. Uh, and that really, I think, entails a couple things. Um, uh, and in, in our mind, it entails having kind of uh, four different arms, so to speak. Uh, one arm is the communication awareness piece. Um, and uh, that's really about like ensuring that there's the right messaging around this topic uh, that is uh, being broadcast. Uh, the second is the education piece. And, you know, so, uh, you know, we see how important that can be, especially as we start to talk about the uh, importance of uh, physicians communicating to their patients uh, about firearm safety. And I think that a lot of that has trickled down into some of our injury prevention committees and different organizations like EAST and uh, the ACSCOT and the AAST, uh, which is terrific. Uh, and then there's, you know, the research piece and you know, right now with a lot of these private-public partnerships that are coming out, many of us have talked, how do we kind of, you know, um, engage those organizations to, um, you know, uh, kind of obtain uh, funding so that we can uh, actually uh, study some of these problems and, and provide solutions. And then the last is the advocacy piece. And that really 
um, is about ensuring that uh, we, uh, you know, hold our uh, uh, elected officials responsible um, and communicate with them about the importance of what a big burden of disease this is and how important it is that we, uh, you know, uh, ensure that we implement common sense uh, gun legislation that will reduce farm injury and death. What I'm hearing you say kind of overall is it seems the there's so many people with good intent and so many organizations and that maybe in the past we've kind of been working in a fractured manner or almost siloed. Do you think that the kind of at this is our lane and, and what you and the Committee on Trauma have been doing is starting to bring all those bits and pieces of good intent together under one roof? Yeah, that's been, I think, one of my biggest frustrations with the gun violence prevention community is that you have so many uh, organizations and individuals that like have like good intention and really want to make a difference in this space but for a variety of reasons often don't function you know hand in hand and so you know we're you know uh, always open for working with other organizations we've uh, been in conversation with the Brady campaign which in full disclosure I'm on the board uh, but about, you know, how do we uh, engage uh, with them and ensure that we're disseminating, you know, some of the great work that's being done uh, on both ends. And I think it's, you know, uh, those type of, you know, collaborations that really, you know, you have to put ego aside and just, you know, come to the table with the intent to really want to make a difference. So I'm going to kind of jump off of the... Um uh, the campaign for the moment. I, I want to ask you, you've gotten some notoriety through all of this as a surgeon. What has that been like? Is it, is it something that you embrace? Is it getting old? Do you sometimes wish you could just go back to being a trauma surgeon, just do your job and hide for a minute? Because, um, I mean, certainly you've been all over the country and you've been, like, really the face of this campaign, which, which truly is critically important. But I thought, you know, because we're talking to our East uh, audience and our listeners, uh, if you could share with us kind of what this has been like. Well, you know, I let me just first say that uh, there's so many people that have contributed to, you know, making this movement what it is. Uh, I don't for a second think that, you know, this movement would be uh, where it's at had it not been for the collective, you know, group of individuals. And it's, you know, frankly, not just trauma surgeons, but it's other disciplines, you know, our pediatricians, our emergency medicine doctors, our primary care doctors, our pathologists. It's a really, and not just docs also, but like our nurses and um, our, uh, you know, techs and respiratory therapists. It's really so impressive how this is united healthcare in general. So I think that's the first thing that's so important to recognize. Uh, and, you know, look, within, um, you know, my own community, like I said, I mentioned, you know, the three people that, uh, you know, Bilal, Jamie, and Rachel that I've been uh, closely working with who have been a great inspiration uh, to me. Uh, but this is, as you know, personal uh, for me. And so uh, I can't think of a more important issue to, to, you know, be working on. And it's one of the reasons that, you know, despite like all the, you know, clinical obligations, 
I've, you know, done a lot of these different things that you're talking about, whether it's interviews and, you know, writing op-eds and so forth on, uh, you know, my own uh, time uh, because uh, this is one of the most important issues that we face as a country. And uh, I think having a unique perspective of having been, a, you know, a victim and now being a provider uh, allows me to have you know, a voice, and um, it's really, it's, it's been, it's been a phenomenal, uh, it's been a, it's been a phenomenal experience. Um, it's also had, you know, some, some downsides, you know, I've had some death threats, yeah. and I've gotten uh, some nasty communication and stuff like that, so uh, it's not all rainbows and lollipops, as Dave Morris would say, mm -hmm. um, but it's important, and that's why I'm here doing it, and uh I really, you know, when I think of East, you know, I, 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 the, all of the people that have reached out and that have been so supportive, um, even those individuals that may not necessarily agree with all of my views, but to know that, like, we have such a tight-knit community, that strength and, and, and that energy has really kind of inspired me. And, you know, when you kind of have those down days, you just think of that and just kind of gets you going and pushes you forward. Push forward, sure. So if someone's listening and they're like, listen, I feel passionately about this too. I'm at, you know, whatever town and whatever state, I want to get involved. I mean, other than just retweeting, what can the individual surgeon do at this point to kind of get involved in this movement and, and make a contribution that's that's meaningful? Yeah, so I think it's a great question because it's, it's one that I get often. And I always tell people, you know, most people don't think that they can make a difference. And uh, I, I think that's totally uh, inaccurate. I think that each one of us can make a difference. In this country, uh, most governing happens at the local level. It's something that I often say when I'm being interviewed because I, I want people to know that uh, what they can do is start within their own communities at their own town councils, in their own hospitals, in you know, their own organizations. Uh, there's so many opportunities within our own communities to change what's possible. And when you look at just last year, I mean, there were over 67 pieces of legislation related to firearms that was passed across the country. Hmm. Yeah, of course, we want federal legislation, but getting the work done at the local level is important as well, uh, if not more important. And uh, so I think starting there is critical. And I think, you know, trying to figure out how do we, you know, not duplicate efforts and resources uh, that are currently being expended. And that requires real collaboration. It requires being willing to kind of put ego aside and and team up and have partners because this is a complex health issue that no one person or one organization is going to figure out on their own. And so if people are willing to do that, if they're willing to engage in their own communities, and if they're willing to honestly, um, you know, morally hold their uh, elected officials accountable, um, I think we can really make a difference in this, uh, in this area. 
Well, thank you so much for sitting with me. Um, up next, we're going to talk to Eileen Berger, who's going to go through us, uh, through with us the uh, work that the American College of Surgeons is doing. She's the chair of the Committee on Trauma. Uh, Joe, thank you again so much for taking some time. I appreciate you sitting with me, as well as all the effort that you've put forth the past few months. Uh, well, thanks so much for covering this, and uh, it's, uh, it's great uh, to see that uh, there's so many people here in the East that are, are motivated to be part of this, this movement, so thank you. Um, sitting with me is Eileen Bolger. Eileen, if you would introduce yourself and um, tell us how you've been involved uh, with firearm injury prevention. Yeah, thanks so much. So a pleasure to talk with you. And, and to me, this is a really important topic for our uh, field in particular. So my name is Eileen Bolger. I'm a professor of surgery at the University of Washington and the trauma medical director at Harborview Medical Center. But, but really, I'm here in my role as the chair of the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma. And I think this is an opportunity for me to, to, to let you know what the American College of Surgeons is doing on this issue and why we feel it's really important. And I think uh, a relatively novel approach that we're taking to the, to the issue. Um, so uh, obviously the This Is Our Lane got a lot of attention um, in the media and then like most things, the media fades away. But uh, we were looking to a way to harness that energy of the medical community, which is you know, obviously now very engaged in the issue, um, in a really practical and constructive way. So the, you know, the ACS Committee on Trauma, under the leadership of Dr. Stewart, uh, really started working on this about four years ago and has been very deliberate in its approach to find a middle ground on this issue, to, to find consensus, to see where we can bring people that feel very strongly either, uh, either for or against the use of guns in society we can bring them to the, the point where we both recognize, we all recognize that we need to reduce uh, unnecessary injuries and deaths from firearms. And so in, do in doing that, we've really um, tried to take a really methodical approach to it. I think that uh, the, um, we're starting to see the fruits of that now, that, that people are really starting to come to the idea that we could, we could actually do something. We could, we could do some things, some practical things that would reduce injuries using a public health approach uh, that would not be as controversial as you might think. Um, and so uh, the, the, under the direction of the COT and the Board of Regents of the college, we actually set forth on a nine-point action plan, which uh, sounds like a lot of work, and it is. And part of that was to actually survey the entire ACS membership, which we've just finished doing and, the, and we'll be presenting to the Board of Regents in the next month, to understand where the surgeons across the entire country a stand on uh, policy issues that uh, we might move forward on, uh, and it's surprising how much people will actually agree on. Um, the other thing that we've done is we've engaged a group of uh, very expert, uh, avid uh, uh, firearm owners that are surgeons, um, and we've developed what we call the firearm strategy team or the FAST team, and they came together and worked over about a period of about nine months to, to come to consensus, and the, and the consensus means that everybody in the group had to agree again, on policy things that they would support uh, that, again, would focus on reducing uh, death and disability. And so that paper was published in JAXA just about the same time as that, uh, that whole uh, this is our lane thing that wasn't uh, planned that way, but that came out about the same time. Um, it, was a, it, well, it was very nice because <laughs> the American College of Physicians had published their position statement at the end of November. Um, the tweet that came from the NRA and their position paper came out the following week, and then your FAST recommendations in the journal of uh, in JAXA was published the same week as well. It was almost like the whole thing was coordinated. Uh, and even though it wasn't, it, it really, I think, all of it came together to, to add some momentum to the topic at hand. Um, I 
I don't know if you are a TraumaCast listener. We, when we did this last month, I took the other side. I mean, my husband is military. He's retired 20 years. Uh, we both own guns. And, and we kind of both want fewer deaths and injuries, but we don't want you to um, impact my life, right? I don't want to go out and spend $400 on a gun safe. And we feel like the trigger locks are adequate. We separate our bullets. Like, we feel we've done enough in our home to, quote, make it safe. It's everybody else's problem, mm-hmm. right? But I'm the trauma surgeon seeing them every day, and I know that's simply not true. Because the majority of the injuries that we see, because we don't see the deaths, right? We see the injuries, um, are often accidental. It's not gang related. It's not, you know, deep, dark, back alley street violence. It's accidents that just happen either in the home or when hunting, because uh, we're, we live in uh, Western Michigan. So I guess that, that's what I wrestle with is like, yes, I want fewer injuries. I certainly want fewer deaths, um, but I just don't want you to kind of impact my life or my expenses if I feel like I'm doing an adequate job. So how do you respond to those of us that sit on that kind of the fence? Absolutely. So, you know, the whole idea behind this consensus narrative that we've tried to, to espouse, and we have paper and jacks on that too. It's called Freedom with Responsibility. Dutch Stewart's <laughs> the lead author. But is that uh, we recognize that firearm ownership in the United States is a constitutionally protected right. And so, but but we have this problem in public health. So how can we make firearm ownership as safe as reasonably possible? And you know, how can we prevent firearms arms from getting in the hands of people who shouldn't have them, right? Who are dangerous to themselves or others, right? And for those that do own firearms legally, how do we make it safe so that accidents don't happen, right? So that so that the the teenager who has an impulsive moment in your home doesn't get a hold of it and and commit suicide. You know, and and it's fatal because it's so 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 high risk, or a, a toddler toddler doesn't get a hold of it, or something like that. So, so there are opportunities and things that we can do. There are obviously policy issues around background checks and things like that 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 many many people will support, but there are also practical things about how we talk to patients about safe storage. You know, how we um, how we counsel uh, people for patients that are at risk for suicide, how we identify those risk factors, um, things about uh, extreme risk protection orders. So the, op- the opportunity that if it's recognized that this is a domestic <coughs> violence situation or somebody's a danger to themselves from a mental health uh, perspective, that, that the weapons could be temporarily removed by, from the home by law enforcement. So those are things that if you survey surgeons and if you survey the public, most people will agree on. So, so why not look at that middle ground, the things that we can practically do that we know will reduce injuries but won't, won't restrict anybody's freedom? Even if that comes at the expense of, yes, you have to go get a gun safe or you have to do certain things, you have to take a class on gun safety, that it may mean that all of us that, quote, think we're safe and haven't had an injury yet might have to do some things to keep us nationally better protected. Is that a good way of looking at yeah. it? Yeah, and, you know, and the analogy's been made that uh, we drive cars, we all drive cars, and there's certain things we have to do to be able to drive a car. We don't have car control, right? <laughs> we don't say we're going to take your cars away, right? But we but we work to make cars safer, mm-hmm. right? We've done a tremendous amount to make cars safer, seatbelts, airbags, right? So maybe there's things we can do to make guns safer, uh, you know, fingerprint ID or something that only you can fire it. Those are those are things that mm-hmm. are out there. You know, you got my phone knows my fingerprint is my face, right? So. There, there's one strategy is to figure out how to make them safer, but the other is is to say you know there may be some things that you have to kind of do to to be safe, uh, and then safety training is an option for new farm owners is an important thing or for younger farm owners, um, uh, and safe storage is a really big thing, I think. 
So tell me more about this summit that's coming up in February. What, who's going and what's the purpose? Yeah, so, you know, again, because we're, we're really trying to move from statements. A lot of organizations make statements, mm-hmm. right? But then nothing happens. Mm-hmm. So you kind of... Like, okay. Except for the uh, stay in your lane statement. Something yeah. certainly happened after yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> but we're trying to move from statements to action. Right? Like, what can we practically do? So, in looking at the whole, this is our lane, which I would rather use the term, this is everyone's lane, mm-hmm. because I don't think we want to see this as a battle with the NRA, right? We want to see this as, this is a problem for everybody in society, we need to deal with it. But, uh, but in response to that, with the medical community being energized, the college said, you know what we should do? We should, we should host a summit where we invite all of the major medical organizations to come, send their leadership, spend a couple days in Chicago, and really talk about what we could do as a group. Imagine the power of over 40 medical organizations speaking with one voice. So we've invited, uh, we've done that, we've invited uh, them, and they're coming in February, and and nearly everyone we invited said yes. Um, And it covers the entire spectrum of medicine. So all the subspecialty organizations, you know, not just surgeons, but we're talking about uh, you know, internal medicine, OBGYN, pediatricians, yeah. you know, uh, emergency medicine, really trying to be all-inclusive. Radiology, mm-hmm. you know. Pathology, right, <laughs> yeah. the medical examiners. You know, trying to be really all-inclusive in um, in having this conversation. And I think for a lot of professional organizations, this is a struggle. The topics feels, like you said, radioactive almost, mm-hmm. right? You can't have the discussion. And I think what we've learned through four years of working through this at the college is you can have this discussion. But you need to you need to work through this process with your membership too. You need to know where they stand by asking them. You need to engage your farm owners in the process. If think about it from an injury pre- prevention perspective, right? We, that's what we do, right? So, if I was going to run a bicycle helmet campaign in my community, and I didn't talk to bicycle riders about how they felt about wearing helmets and whether they you know whether they would wear them, it was a waste of time, right? So why would I run a firearm safety campaign without talking to firearm owners? So this strategy of going back to their organizations and engaging their farm owners in the discussion mm-hmm. in the solutions, I think is a really, it's, you know, not rocket science, but it's a kind of a novel way of approaching this issue where we've been so divided. But do we have a selection bias at that summit if it's the leaders of medical organizations and we aren't including the leaders of fire, firearm Organizations, NRA is the easiest one to think of, but there's certainly many organizations, each individual state, um, even counties have local organizations. When and how do we start getting them engaged with the power of having 40 medical uh, leaders come together? Because again, like your bicycle example, if you don't talk to the other side as well, it may be all fruitile. So our approach again at the college has been to be as uh, radically inclusive as we can. And so we have spoken to all the stakeholders. We've, we've had ongoing discussions with the NRA, um, also with you know, the, the Giffords campaign, the Brady campaign, the folks that are uh, you know, on both sides of this issue. And um, my vision is we'd like to bring those groups together for a meeting too, a little bit more delicate in how mm-hmm. to do that. Um, uh, but, but we need to get people talking to each other because I think there are practical solutions and we have to get off of this idea that there's some kind of slippery slope, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that if I give an inch, I give a mile, uh, and, and see that there are things that we can do that will protect freedom, but will reduce injuries. And that's where we need to be as a, as a country, if we're gonna make progress. And that's, so that's what, we're, that's what we're working on. 
I think it's a, it's an incredibly lofty goal. I wish you all the best of luck, and I hope that uh, you know ten years from now, I hope we look back and think, man, I can't believe we were even arguing over some of these things. It goes back to seatbelts and helmets and airbags and uh, and the rest. So thank you very much for giving me your time this morning. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.